Welcome, everyone, to the newest episode of A and Do ID, which is um, going to be a new iteration on the the theme, where I does not sound stand for infectious, but rather ophthalmologic, which obviously is O, but I is not. So uh, welcome, David. Thanks we are, for helping us you know, out. We're very punny here. Um, we are going to run out of these, though, eventually. Uh, we did do the A and D do A and B. So, you know, we had a something different there. We'll, we'll see how many more with these we can come up with. I'm, I, my brain is not, not going to get any more. Let's be honest. <laughs> Maybe we'll have an ophthalmologic D at some point then. Yeah. Well, let's talk about some eye diseases. Uh, let's just start with the first thing boards want us to know, which is nystagmus, which I, I, I kind of find an interesting topic. And challenging. And challenging, yeah. Sometimes I can't tell. Hopefully, we'll try and find some videos of these things for our Twitter. Yeah, I think that's probably something that you need to see to really make the connection there. But we'll describe it for you um, real quick and see if we can attach it to the brain. Yeah, so there's two really big ones that you should know about. One is called pendular nystagmus. And I think if you're going to remember one, it's probably this one, right? Yeah, because this is the one that seems more pathologic. The other one can be normal, and so this is this is the one that I think uh, you'll probably be tested on. So this pendular is uh, nystagmus is basically nystagmus that goes in equal velocities in both directions. So it's like the bilateral nystagmus, I guess that we often think about, but it goes like left and right on both eyes, or not both eyes, at least left and right at the same velocity, because it should be one is fast and one is slow. If it's both right. Faster, so this fast. is this is really that true horizontal nystagmus where you see kind of that twitching of the eye back and forth. All right. So then, what is the second, like the most imp- other important kind of nystagmus we should know? So that's the jerk nystagmus. So that's where you have the uh, kind of that quick gaze laterally, and then the slow gaze back to the back to central. Yeah. And this um, can but, be normal. Exactly. So. Yeah. Yeah, so jerk nystagmus can be normal, and I think you can think of this as the way, like if you're playing with a, a toy and you take it far out of a field of vision from a child and they're looking for it or up as well, when they, they get that kind of quick jerk and then slow back to the middle. And again, this can be normal. Yeah. Don't forget, though, with, with pendular, though, that if it's pathologic, you want to think about MS or like spinocerebellar disease for the pendular nystagmus. And uh, I didn't know this until we did some topics, like some looking up for this uh, episode. But there's a there's a benign condition called spasmus nutans, N-U-T-A-N-S, and it's benign and uh, it's transient in that like kids will grow out of it. But it's characterized by pendular nystagmus, intermittent head tilt, and nodding or head bobbing, which I had never heard of. Well, this is, we did cover this in one of our cases when we did torticollis. Oh, is you yeah. Have to, you have to think about visual things that can cause it. And this spasmus nutans is one of those visual things that can be mistaken for torticollis. Because they kind of turn their head to see. Yep. Trying to correct things. Well, that's awesome. All right. What's All next? Right. Let's uh, see. Other alignment issues. Um, so we'll talk about strabismus and pseudostrabismus and what happens if you don't recognize that in a kid. So why don't we uh, start with strabismus itself? Okay. I'm not, never good at this one. <laughs> uh, 
Um, so basically, this is where you have abnormal alignment of one eye in relation to the other. So kind of like one cross-eyed would be strabismus. Got it. Got it. Yep. And um, then if you have, it looks like um, the eye is deviating, but there's actually some other facial issue that's causing the eye to look that way. That's the pseudostrabismus. So if they have like a wide nose or extra skin on their eyelid and it actually just makes the eye appear different, that's not actually strabismus. It's as opposed to where the eye is actually deviated from the other one. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And then the eye, you can actually tell like which eye is has strabismus versus the other one by doing the cover test. Exactly. Cover, uncover. So you cover it and then you uncover it after the kid is looking at one particular spot and the eye with the strabismus will deviate instead of fixating on said object. So that's how you know which eye is the strabismus eye. Yep. And that's literally the purpose of the cover uncover test is to check for strabismus. Awesome. Do you know what happens if you miss strabismus in a kid? Uh, I think they can like go kind of blind, right? Like they both eyes won't work together. Exactly. So the non-dominant eye can actually lose vision and you end up with amblyopia. Let's talk about amblyopia while we're at it. Uh, it's the loss of visual acuity on one eye, basically. From a, This can be like the, the result of um, ptosis, like where you don't get a good like input to that eye, or congenital cataract, or again, the strabismus um, that's persistent. It's literally a situation of if you don't use it, you lose it. Exactly. <laughs> um, and so you need to recognize any type of disorder like this by age six so it can be corrected because um, after that they likely will end up with permanent vision loss. So some other uh, ones to know about, just like if we're talking about strabismus, there is esotropia and exotropia, and they're both a form of strabismus, which is always a little bit tricky for me, but esotropia is inward turning of the eye and exotropia is outward turning of the I think eye. You, but you, so you can think of that east, like the exo as out exit. Exactly. Yeah. So I yeah. think that makes sense. Yeah. So Eso well, in, exo out. Exactly. And then there's the last one, which is hyperopia, which uh, that one's tricky to me. Um, basically is a mild farsightedness. It's not that big a deal, if that makes sense. Okay. Okay. But just in case you see it, I don't think it's that high yield, to be honest. No, I don't think so either. I think the strabismus and amblyopia are probably going to be the higher yield stuff in, in that area. And just as a, like as a refresh, strabismus can cause amblyopia, which is blindness, basically, of that eye. It's not complete blindness, but it's the inability to use have binocular vision, whereas amblyopia can be caused by multiple things, not just strabismus. Yeah. All right. I think we beat that one. Okay. Let's move on to uh, the thing that I feel like we see all the time in the emergency department. Uh, styes versus chalazions. And I think that this is, again, one of those that you're going to have to differentiate between in the question stem. They're going to describe it to you and you're going to have to decide which one it is or how you're going to manage it. 
So why don't we start with styes or external hordeolums? So, um, so you, yeah, I think ahead. about a sty as like an, it's an infection. Exactly. So if you just remember that sty is an infection, which I kind of think of like, oh, it's a pig sty. It's dirty, right? Like it's dirty with infection. This is how I remember it. But uh, because they hurt because it's an infection, it's like uh, painful. Um, it's usually fairly acute, you know, because it just gets infected with staph usually. Yep. And the treatment yep. is uh, warm compresses. You can do antibiotics, but you probably don't need them. Probably just need yeah. some warm compresses. And if you are going to do them, though, only topical. Right. So if you, ha if you have an option that says PO antibiotics, it's not going to be the right answer. Not so right. warm compresses are typically uh, sufficient for this. And then comparing that to a chalazion, so you said infection for the sty. It's more of like a chronic inflammation that's going to cause a chalazion. Yeah, it's called a lipogranuloma. Exactly. So it's just kind of chronic inflammation of the um, of the oil glands. What yeah. what are those called again? Mayobi Mayobian glands. Yeah, I'm not. Is that I'm, right? I'm maybe. I think that's right. Okay. We'll we'll clarify, but I'm pretty sure that's right. And then remember, both we didn't even say this, but both of these are like on the eyelid, basically these like little bumps that you that people come in for. The nice thing again about the chalazion is not infectious; it's chronic, and these are actually usually painless. So unlike the infection that hurts really bad, these ones are kind of there for longer, and they don't really hurt or bother you. They're just kind of weird looking. And if it gets bigger or if it gets irritating, um, sometimes these have to get excised um, by uh, an ophthalmologist uh, or an oculoplastics person. Yeah. But warm compresses and topical antibiotics do not work for these. That's pretty easy. Agreed. All right. What is next? So moving on to our next area of eye discussion. So we're going to talk about glaucoma and cataracts. So why don't you lead us into some glaucoma and what we need to be thinking about and looking for for these kids. So glaucoma is increased intraocular pressure, right? Like that's the definition. It obviously, it can lead to blindness and it can be really bad. So you don't want to miss this. Some of the ways that um, congenital glaucoma, which is kind of what the boards really want us to know about for peds, obviously in our adults, we, we have other types, but um, for peds, we want to know mostly about congenital glaucoma. The way this normally presents is lots of tearing of the eyes, some photophobia. You can get corneal clouding redness, edema, and the progressive enlargement of the eyes. It's not usually super acute. It's like this kind of slowly increasing size of the eye. Remember that port wine stains, which are obviously um, associated with Sturge-Weber disease, these are kids who are at increased risk of glaucoma. And so you really want to make sure that that is evaluated urgently, maybe even emergently by ophthalmology, because glaucoma really does require like urgent and sometimes emergent intervention by ophthalmology. So that could be a question stem. If you have a kid with a port wine stain, what is something else you need to consider? They love those secondary and yes, tertiary questions. Make so sure I you're checking their intraocular pressures. That's what you need to, to know. Perfect. All right. So, and then the other thing associated kind of similar is cataracts. Yeah. Cataracts which is like that clouding of the cornea. Again, this can... This could lead to um, what we talked about earlier, right? Amblyopia. Mm -hmm. If you have it for a long period of time, because you're not going to get that input into that um, ophthalmo into that optic nerve that you need. 
And the big ones that they want us to know that the associations with uh, congenital cataracts is congenital rubella uh, and galactosemia. Those and are the big CMV ones. too, right? Yeah. Lots of the torch yep. infections can do it. Yeah. But we were just talking about something interesting about it is uh, you told me that I'm supposed to look at the parents first. Yeah. So about 50% of cataracts are actually um, inherited in an autosomal dominant fashion. Like so, who knew? So in the in the clinic world, you always got to look at the parents to try and figure things out. So this yeah. is another one of those. <laughs> right. I feel like we're hitting a lot of well-child exam stuff yes, today. For sure. We talked about cover, uncover. So what's the, what do we want to look for um, if we're suspecting a congenital cataract? Or what exam might we do and then we might suspect it after that? Uh, red reflex. Exactly. So absent red reflex, you get that white spot there. You, you can start to think about uh, something like a cataract. And if these kids have been kind of like either if it's been missed for a while and they're getting older, like walking and, um, you know, like toddler age even or even older, um, or if they've developed a secondary cataract for whatever reason, sometimes uh, they actually will describe these kids as like clumsy um, more than normal and like spills a lot of things because when you have a cataract, one of the first things to go is actually your um, depth perception. So they often can't really, they run into stuff because they can't quite tell how far away it is. Very interesting. I think so. I think it's kind of interesting. I don't even like the eye that much, you know? <laughs> So we're going to get a little oncology bonus in uh, the opto section here, and we're going to talk about retinoblastoma for a second. Also another thing that messes up your red reflex. Which so, I have to be honest with you. Every time I'm looking at a red reflex, that's what I'm thinking I'm looking for. But really cataracts is much more common probably than retinoblastoma. But both of them can screw up your red reflex. Yep. So they have the leukocoria, um, which is the white pupil uh, in retinoblastoma. And they can also present with strabismus. So it's also an important thing when you see a strabismus to look for your red reflex. Yep, exactly. So this one is autosomally dominant uh, inheritance pattern. But I find it interesting that it says that only 5% uh, of these patients have a family history of retinoblastoma, you even know though why? it's autosomal dominant. Do you know why? Because it has No, in, tell me why. Because it has incomplete penetrance. Even though it's oh. dominant, it's an incomplete penetrance, which is, you know, one of those genetic things we talked about previously. Ugh. I know. Damn you, it just comes Damn you back. Mendel. It comes back all the time. Oh, it's like, <laughs> uh, right. What else do we need to know about it? Really, that's kind of it. Some of, like, I feel like the board exam is always like, oh, you know, they took a family picture and they only had a, a red, red eye and one eye and the other eye was white. That's oh, yeah. That's like the retinoblastoma story. Classic. Yeah. Then the other thing, too, is they love to ask this, is what are they at risk for later in life? Yes. So I don't know. Oste osteosarcoma is the answer to that. And um, also melanoma. More cancers. Yep, more cancers. So, and these, these kids typically will get chemo radiation, but the big thing is a lot of them lose their eyeball. I know, it's sad. Enu it enucleation is, sad. is what that's called. Enucleation. Yeah. All right, I think we covered retinoblastoma. Okay, let's, uh, let's talk about uh, another little internal eye problem of the retina. Retinopathy of prematurity, which all of us PEDS residents probably know because we you know, have to do the NICU and they all come in and get their eye exams. 
Yep, they got to get their ROP exams. Yep, exactly. So this, uh, the retinopathy of prematurity is more common in children that weigh less than 1,500 grams and who are born at less than 32 weeks gestational age. Yep, exactly. So I think a lot of times you hear that, oh, they were on oxygen for a prolonged period of time, so that increased their risk of, or that's why they had the retinopathy of prematurity. But it's actually the the low just the young age and low birth weight that's going to put them at um, at higher risk. And the greatest risk is actually a gestational age less than 28 weeks. So that's what you're going to think about. And it's right in the name, right? Retinopathy of prematurity. Yeah, those kids needed to cook a little bit longer. And they just, their eyes aren't ready. Yep, exactly. So if you are, um, I mean, that it may be as simple as that, is that they give you a baby that's got retinopathy of prematurity and they ask you what the greatest risk factor was. And you're going to either, if very low birth weight or prematurity is an option, that's what you're going to pick, not oxygen. And remember, you need to screen these kids by having opto come in and you screen them at 31 to 34 weeks post gestation or four to six weeks after birth, whichever one is later. You want to give it some time to... Uh, show up and there may be some pictures of the eye there's some other high yield eye pictures like papilledema or retinal hemorrhages um, that you may see but for retinopathy of prematurity you actually get an avascular retina so when you're looking at the eye it's almost like half you see a bunch of vascularity and then the other half of the eye doesn't have vascularity at all uh, and that's the retinopathy we'll try and get a picture of that onto uh, twitter exactly all right, let's uh, let's talk about something we kind of forgot that's not internal to the eye, but is incredibly common. In fact, my uh, little child has it cur- currently: nasolacrimal duct obstruction, or dacrocystitis. Yeah, I call this a clogged tear duct to the families <laughs> because that's what it is. Right. And it's super, super common. And honestly, you don't have to really do much except for do some warm compresses and like warm massage of the lacrimal duct um, several times a day. Um, they come, sometimes can kind of look nasty, like they can have a lot of gunk, but you don't have to treat them unless it really looks infected, like you're having a lot of redness and maybe swelling. Otherwise, it's just the warm compresses. And that's the big thing with it is it often gets confused for conjunctivitis because they have that kind of gunkiness. But for the most part, like you said, it's just the massage and the majority of time you don't need antibiotics for these. Right. Uh, if if it persists beyond uh, 12 months, sometimes they need to have the duct opened. Yeah, right. it's super, super common. All right. We are going to talk about actually one of my favorite things, which is eye trauma. I actually really enjoy doing this in the emergency department, getting out the slit lamp and doing all the f- fancy stuff. But we are going to talk about it because I think it's something that, um, in general, pediatrics don't have a great uh, exposure to. Because like all of mine are mostly adults, right? I don't know yeah, about you. Yeah, exactly. No, you're right. Just so you know, on the boards, most of the time you should never pick call a specialist, right? But probably However, in eye trauma, you should call a specialist. Okay, so if they're giving you anything weird, the answer might actually just be refer to ophthalmology. And it could be very emergently versus urgently. So we'll start with hyphema. A hyphema, and we should we'll put a picture of this on our on Twitter too, but hyphema is when you have blood in the anterior chamber of the eye. So like, you know, between the cornea and the iris, basically, you'll have blood in there. And you can have a very large hyphema, which is actually like the entire 
uh, area, the entire uh, anterior chamber, which we sometimes call an eight ball eye. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it's really kind of cool when you see it. It's not good for the patient, but it's cool to see. Or you can have anything less than that. So you can have like a 20% hyphema or 10, whatever. But the biggest thing is that they need ophthalmologic uh, referral for sure, right? And they need bed rest often, and they have to have their their um, head of their bed elevated 30 degrees, and they often need an eye patch over that eye. And that's where you get that kind of layer. Like if you sit them up and you have your slit lamp, you can see the layering. Yeah. Um, in the eye. So it's a, it's a cool exam finding again, not good for the patient, but cool exam finding in adults. We would not admit these patients usually unless it's really bad, but in kids, they often will admit them because they really need them to not move. And if you had like a three-year-old, right, that would be bad. They, I could not keep my three-year-old from moving. So they admit them to do that. Makes sense. Um, you can also have fractures of the orbital wall wall associated with uh, trauma, you want to make sure that this doesn't entrap the optic nerve. So that is kind of why you do extraocular movement testing. This would also be a ophthalmologic emergency if you do have entrapment of that nerve. And that's going to be, that's going to be the board question is they're going to ask you kind of, they give, they're going to give you a description of somebody hit in the face and they're going to tell you that their extraocular movements are decreased. And it's either going to be what to do next or what are you concerned about. So something like a blowout fracture. And then if you're concerned, then definitely get an opto right away. Also, remember that um, I didn't talk about this before, but uh, hyphema can be a sign of a, of globe rupture, which is bad. <laughs> definitely bad. That's like go to the OR now with um, opto kind of bad. Is there an association with uh, traumatic iritis, like if you have hyphemia, or am I making that up? Uh, you're kind of making that up. You okay. can have it because anytime you have tra- uh, anytime you have trauma to the eye, you can get traumatic iritis, but it's not necessarily like they don't necessarily go to always go together. And the buzzword is uh, consensual photophobia. That's right. I love traumatic iritis. You'll often see cell and flare in your eye exam, and you'll have consensual photophobia. So what that means is. When you put a light in the non-affected eye, it causes pain, or it causes photophobia and pain in the other eye, in the bad eye. Makes sense. Yeah. Uh, and the only other, uh, the other kind of uh, traumatic eye things to know would be um, corneal abrasion, which is very common. Um, you see that on a fluorescein exam. You'll have lots of tearing and a lot of pain. These patients need uh, ophthalmology follow-up, and they need uh, topical antibiotics. And this is one, too, where you may see, I think we've touched on this in um, our NAT discussion, but if you have a irritable infant and you can't figure out what's going on, you can consider corneal abrasion in them. Yeah. So go ahead and stain the eyeballs. The other, uh, the last thing to know from a traumatic eye disease problem is a detached retina. So these patients, you know, if they're older, they might like tell you the quote curtain, whatever, like the curtain field of defect in their vision. In reality, like if they're young, they might not be able to tell you that. Uh, that's why if you're really having vision problems, they're probably going to need to see opto, someone who could do a pediatric exam because this needs a fundoscopic exam. Or a good dilated eye exam. Yeah. 
I'm going to throw in a last little, uh, do you remember what this Slidell sign is? I do know what it is. It's when the um, floor scene, when you put it in the eye to do a floor scene exam, it kind of comes down like a waterfall. Like it looks and like we'll, a waterfall and it means you've ruptured your globe. Yep. It's so bad. you may be looking for corneal abrasion and find a waterfall. That's really bad. That's real bad. Remember any kind of uh, odd shaped pupil, uh, hyphema, the Seidel sign, or really profound vision loss can be a sign of globe rupture and those need emergent ophthalmologic uh, evaluation. All right. Very good. I think that's the eye in uh, whatever period of time we just covered it in. Right. Uh, we did not do any like infectious eye because we were not doing infectious diseases today, you know, but um, hopefully that will be, uh, we'll cover that some other time. Not a problem.